Well, today, as we look to the scriptures now, would you turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4? Ephesians chapter 4. Remember that we have pivoted from the doctrinally rich sections of chapter 1, 2, and 3, right, that have uh, reminded us of what we were before and, and excluded from the life that is given to us in Christ. And how rich that life is. And not only is the, is the new life in Christ rich, it is one that has been established, planned, and fulfilled from before the laying of the entire matter that forms our universe. God has prepared a redemptive plan even before he began to create anything or even create Adam and Eve themselves. I mean, this is God's intention to be glorified for the grace that he will bestow upon sinners. And that has been accomplished in Jesus Christ. And so as we enter into chapter 4, chapter 5, and chapter 6, we see kind of the working out of what that gospel truth means for us as believers. And not surprisingly, um, chapter 4 begins for us in speaking of what the gospel means for us individually or actually corporately in terms of the body of Christ that is the church. So if verse 1 of chapter 4 is the theme of the second half of the book of Ephesians, I therefore, prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, then he begins, the apostle under inspiration of the Holy Spirit begins by speaking of your value your significance in being connected to the local body, which is the church. That's what we've been learning. That's hopefully what you have been gathering around as you've been looking to the scriptures and as you've been listening to these messages. And again, not because of my opinion, but because of what scripture seems to be pressing upon us. And so we're continuing that, that discussion of this one new humanity this new body that is the church, uh, where once we were Jews or Gentiles or, you know, whatever category of individuals and uh, uh, social economic status, whatever it was that you chose to categorize, right, or identify yourself, those are all gone in the sense that we are in the church all redeemed by the same blood of Jesus Christ, by the same gospel. We have all repented of our sins, placed our faith in Christ alone, and as a result of that, have found that our sins have been washed away. And then not because of anything we do, but because of his infinite mercy and kindness to us, we are now in a covenant relationship of love. We are sons and daughters of God. Not because we're better than anyone, not because we're more valuable than anyone, but because God has cast his love on us in Christ. So the question is, so then now that we have this commonness, there's no Jew nor Gentile, we are all one in Christ, how do we grow this body of unified, gospel-centered people of God? And that's what today is about. Our passage is long. We'll do our best to work through it as efficiently as we can. Um, but Ephesians chapter 4, verses 7 through 16, speaks of how to grow the church. It is almost the how part of, of all the glorious things that are the same. The same God, the same Lord, right? The same Father, the same Spirit that unites us all. But the question was, how do we grow this experience? How do we grow this church? And this is where we're going. 
We are gifted. We grow the church, not, not by taking polls or by figuring out what kind of seats are more comfortable or by doing all the different kind of manner of things that people have thought is helpful for growing a church. It's not about figuring out how to make things more comfortable for people, although, you know, those aren't bad things. We, I mean, I don't want you to come and sit on stones Right, Just to prove your, your loyalty to Christ and the church. The point is, though, how do we grow his church? And I think we grow the church through leaning in on the gifts that he has already provided. Christ has gifted us right, um, through his conquering grace. He has gifted us for the sake of building up the body. And he's gifted us so that as a church, we would grow up into the full measure of maturity that is Um, appropriate for the followers of Jesus Christ. That's kind of the outline that we're going to hit. Let me read to us our portion of scripture, and then we will unpack it. Ephesians chapter 4, starting in verse 7. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried away by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come before your scriptures now, having sung songs about your redeeming grace and how we have been brought in as a church family, we ask that you would turn our attention and our hearts to the scriptures, that you would give us conviction, Lord. Um, to recognize that you have given us a local body of believers, a, a church family, a dynamic that, that is a, a corporate entity so that um, we might fight the temptation, Lord, to live merely for ourselves and our own. Lord, we recognize that it is the sin of, of every generation that if we have the potential, the capacity, that we care about ours, And making sure that we get what we want, what we feel that we need. Our lives are centered around the self-satisfying, self-centered idolatry, Lord, that is so rampant amongst all human beings. Lord, may the church of Christ be different. And may we recognize that every gift, every good thing that comes from your hand of faithfulness, is meant to be used in order to grow another generation of believers, to to grow another generation of gospelizing peoples, to to grow a a faithful um, generation, Lord, that would rise up and stand for you as the world gets so dark. Lord, give us, Lord, the conviction 
of being part of the body of Christ for your glory, for your purposes, in fulfillment of everything that you have intended the church to be. We praise you, Lord, for your word. We praise you for the gospel of Jesus Christ. We praise you for our life. Tie us together in a way that demonstrates your grace and the corporate identity of your church for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So as we look at the idea of growing the church, like I said, the the world has so many different ideas of how to grow their business, right? Whether it is, you know, getting people in, you know, advertising on, on, um, on internet stuff, right? On your YouTube channels, right? Advertising in papers, whatever it is. There are so many things. And when we first church planted, Right? We'd have these uh, young seminarians taking a church plant class at the seminary that I attended. And as they attend, they were given a list of individuals that have church planted in the area. And we would be on that list. And so some of these young men, excited about the potential of planting a church one day, they would interview me. And I would tell them honestly when they call and ask, I'd say, listen, uh, you, you might want to interview someone else, Right? Like we, we didn't necessarily do this right. We just kind of did whatever we thought we should do. Just taught scripture, right? We didn't have, you know, we didn't have a lot of help. We didn't even have financial backing. We just started the church. And so when we get together and they start asking questions, they'd ask all these great questions. Like, hey, so how did you advertise the church when you guys started? And I said, well, what do you mean? And they said, well, did you take out an ad in the paper so that the neighborhood would know? I said, no, that. That's a pretty good one, right? Or did, did you just, you know, uh, did you go door to door and leave like knockers or mailers, right? So that people would know when you guys first started. I said, no, but that's another good one, right? I said, so you guys just put out a sign and then just expected people to kind of know, you know, that you're a church and what you're about. I said, dude, we didn't buy a sign until we were 10 years into our church plan. And as we walked through, I think what became evident to them is that we did so little about what would be kind of the tangible, normal planning things. And I'm not saying that to our credit, right? We should have probably done more. There's no question about that. But I think the value, because I wondered why, you know, a good friend, Alex Montoya, a great pastor, um, uh, a mentor to many young pastors, why he, in teaching that church planning class, would put us on the list, especially after the first few interviews that year for a few years afterwards, right? And I realized the reason why I would do it if I was teaching a church planning class, because those church planners need to be reminded that all the good things that they plan to do, all the best ways that they could plan, in the end, those are just the human kind of effort that we put in. It's Christ that builds his church, right? And here's an example of a church that's probably not as thoughtful as they should be, not as intentional as they should be about some of the things that they do, but the Lord has been gracious to build that church. Listen, that's the testimony you want in terms of the church, that that we are built not because of our capacities or abilities or our particular, right, right, um, excitable kind of applications, but really just because this is the church that Christ has planted. And he is the one that provides the power and the grace for it to be sustained. And that's what we're talking about. How do you grow the church? Well, see, we try to put it in each of the points. You grow it by the gifts that Christ has supplied. And the first is this. We are gifted as a church, right? And as individuals, we are gifted By a conquering grace. By a conquering grace. Look at verse 7. 
But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. There's a few things that are mentioned there that we want to make highlight of, right? That each of us has been gifted according to Christ's measure and the measure of his grace. Now, this is what we mean by that. First of all, grace was given to us. And you notice, you notice the, the, the duplication, the re- repetition of these ideas of what is given to us, not what we have earned, right? Grace was given to each of us according to the measure of Christ's gift, grace given gift. Three times in a singular sentence, the emphasis is not on what we accomplished, but what Christ has given. See, there's a pivot, right? The, the, the but, the contrastive connector, right? Why, why is it but grace was given? Because we have just left off talking about our oneness, everything that is the same in us. If you look back to verse 4, it says, There is one body, one spirit, just as you are called to one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. So Paul had just finished talking about how the church is one identity, one corporate reality, that we are all kind of blended in into a singularity that is the body of Christ. And having emphasized our unity, our singular identity, He wants to contrast that and not just say we are just one big, right, Borg, right? Where we just kind of absorb each other. Is it the Borg? I don't remember. It's a a Star Trek reference and nobody kind of smiled. So I I guess that's the wrong one. Maybe maybe I named them wrong. But they used to, they're an alien species that would simulate all other species and make them one big giant cube, right? That's That's not what the church is. It is what it is in terms of our singular identity. We are one in Christ. But then now to each, and that's the point. But grace is given, regardless of the fact that we are all kind of all the same. We have the same experience. We're saved by the same gospel. We are unique in how God has gifted us, right? We are unique in how each one, but grace was given to each one. Emphasizing the fact that every single Christian has been gifted with a particular Christ's gift for the service of the body of Christ. Now listen, some of you guys are sitting there, especially the more shy ones, might think, man, I I believe in Jesus. I love him. You know, I have received him into my heart unto salvation. I'm a member of this church, but Christ didn't give me no gifts, you know, or if he did, they're like, like little time, like sit in the pew and listen carefully gift or something, right? That's what you might be thinking. But the fact is that that every Christian, according to this particular verse, has been graced by God, right, through Christ, with particular mixture of spiritual giftedness. Now, I said that intentionally and carefully. Because notice the second part of verse 7, according to the measure of Christ's gift. In other words, his gifting of you in particular is a mixture in differing amounts of differing gifts in exactly the proportion that he has chosen for you. It means that even in our sameness, we are all one in the body of Christ. We all have the same standing before for God because of uh, the redemption that we have received through his death. Yet we are distinct. Our gifting is different. And even if someone's a good teacher and another one's a good teacher, their teaching is probably slightly different. 
Their, their amount of giftedness, the way that they're gifted, is entirely kind of, kind of unique to them. You, you might have a gift, right? Your spiritual gift might be some combination of your capacity to be hospitable, to bring in others, to evangelize, to do something. But it's probably different from another uh, brother or sister in Christ who is gifted in somewhat similar ways. The point is that it is a mix a unique mixture, how God has bequeathed to us our particular gifts. No, no single Christian is identical in giftedness to another Christian. It is all according to Christ's measure. It's the measure of Christ's gift for us, sovereignly and absolutely. Romans 12, 6 says, similarly, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. Use whatever gifts that God has given to you. And if you, if you are sitting around thinking, well, I'm not that gifted, you probably mean I'm not that gifted in things that are obvious to others. The question to ask yourself is, how has God made you sensitive to what issues and concerns and, and, and you know, desires and the things that you would like to see as a body of Christ, what, what are those things that have settled on your soul as a believer? And then now, can you flesh that out in such a way that would be helpful to the rest of the body? Because each one of us has been gifted by the grace of Jesus Christ in a mixture, in a measure that is unique to every single one. There's a couple of things that we should draw from that immediately. One, according to this scripture, and I think according to the application of it all, um, no single Christian is entirely, you know, fully gifted with all the gifts. There's, there's, there's no super Christian guy, right, who has all the gifts. It means that, that no single Christian is gifted to be self-sufficient or to be sufficient for everything you need in the church. So that's going to be if you ask me to do something in the church, mm, you know, we'll see how that goes, Right. I may be able to do it. I may not be able to do it. I may remember. I may forget, right? None, none of us are so sufficient that we just know, okay, we have that guy, that guy, that guy. We're good. And if you think on those terms, that means that the body of Christ has been so designed by God's sovereignty that all the members need each other. See, isn't it interesting? It's the exact measure, right? The distribution, the distinctions of how God mixes these giftedness amongst the congregation that makes all of us need everyone else. Someone could, you know, have the gift of teaching. But, you know, we do a lot of stuff on a given Sunday that makes preaching a message possible, right? I mean, it goes all the way back from, you know, to the commentaries, the scholars, to the professors, the teachers that train me to guys have to get audio stuff going, get lights up, you know, pay the rent for the church. You get what I mean? There is so many things that must take place. And if it's true that there is no single Christian that is sufficient enough, then all the individual members of the body of Christ, they grow in love and appreciation for each other because we need each other. And then if we are spiritual, there's no jealousy. Because if I'm not good at that, I should have the humility to go, dude, I'm out of my depth. I could use your help. Are you, are you good at this? Dude, thank you so much for doing this, right? That, that's how God has orchestrated intentionally the distribution of gifts in the body of Christ. 
So the church becomes interdependent. I think that's an interesting concept, and I think that'll flesh out in the rest of our passage. But, but what a wondrously creative way that God has built, right, or distributed his gifts among us so that as we serve one another, we become interdependent and, and we become thankful, right, for the service of everyone else. That is how God has constructed the church. And if you are here and you realize as a Christian you are not a member of a church, you haven't really committed to a membership of the church, this is an experience you don't even, you're just kind of hearing by theory. It's kind of like, you know, being independent, being a hermit, and then hearing that there are families that kind of get together and they fill in the gaps and the needs for one, and just kind of knowing that by theory. If you get nothing else from our messages in Ephesians chapter 4, it ought to be that you should be a member of a church. You don't have to be a member of this church. I'm I'm always reminding you that that's the case. But you need to be a part of the body of Christ in fellowship, connection, serving. Because what is the other purposes for which you have been saved? To be the singular lone Christian that is out there? Too many of those. Too many of those. We are meant to be in a collective body for the glory of Jesus Christ. So each art has been gifted according to Christ's measure. And then secondly, verses 8 through 10, all according to Christ's victory. Now, this is an interesting thing because as this uh, pivots, if you're just reading this, you might go, well, what is this about? Verse 8, therefore it says, so obviously Paul is quoting something from the scriptures or somewhere, and he says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. Paul is referencing Psalm 68, 18. You could turn there if you want to take a quick look at that psalm. Um, it is a psalm of, uh, of victory. And uh, there's a couple of things we want to point out from there. right? And in Psalm 68, it's a, song, it's a psalm about how God is going to conquer his enemies. God the conqueror. Verse 1, God shall arise, his enemies shall be scattered, and those who hate him shall flee before him. As smoke is driven away, so you shall drive them away. As wax melts before the fire, so the wicked shall perish before God. But the righteous shall be glad, they shall exult before God, they shall be jubilant with joy. So sing to God, sing praises to his name, lift up a song to him who rides through the deserts. His name is the Lord, exult before him. So it's a song of victory. And as the psalm continues, by the time verses 18 and following, right, it, it is, a, is a, a psalm of ascent. It's saying, you ascend on high, leading a host of captives in your train and receiving gifts among men, even among the rebellious, that the Lord God may dwell there. Blessed be the Lord who daily bears us up. God is our salvation. Our God is a God of salvation. And to God, the Lord, belong deliverances from death. Well, so if it is a psalm um, exulting in the victory of God over sin and for sinners' sake, right, for the righteous' sake, um, then it, it, is, it is giving to us a connection of Christ and his conquest. I probably, wait, let, let me explain this a little bit, right? Like the question that you would ask as you're reading, um, you know, our passage here is that as soon as as soon as Paul mentions that we have been given a gift 
by Christ, each of us, in different measure, in different mixtures, and that we're supposed to do it, use it together for the betterment of the body of Christ, then immediately he talks about where the origin of these gifts came from, right? And he quotes something that sounds exactly like Psalm 68, but with a couple of very significant differences. He says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. The context is the conquering God who has rescued us and he has, he has taken captives and he's given gifts or he is, he is given gifts. But Paul makes a subtle but very significant and intentional change. He, did you notice that? Two things. I mean, one is, is a little bit minor is he shifts the, the person, right? Um, when he ascended, so third person, when we read our psalm, it says, it says, you know, that uh, it says you ascended, right? So you, you have this subtle shift from the second person to the third person. Not that big of a deal that, you know, he's just, he may be not quoting verbatim, but just kind of generally speaking of that psalm. But here's the part that's interesting. He switches, right, the main verb. In other words, instead of saying the main action, instead of saying that the conqueror received gifts, even from those that he has conquered, even from sinners, it says the opposite, right? Paul quotes that, but then he changes it and says that that he's the one that's distributing the gifts. Where this becomes interesting is it becomes a question of how do the New Testament authors use the Old Testament text, and how does that impact our hermeneutic? how we interpret the Old Testament. I don't think Paul is trying to give us a hermeneutic here. I don't think he's taking the Old Testament text and saying, this is what the text always meant. Not at all. I think he's referencing this verse because it's probably in his mind and as a, as a teacher of the Old Testament law, even as a Pharisee, well equipped to speak about the, the ideas and the wording, the vocabulary that comes from the Old Testament. And he is saying that it's like the conqueror who brings a host of captives, but he's changing a couple things to, to adapt that vocabulary, that sensibility to us in the New Testament age. He is saying that Christ is victorious in rescuing us from our sins. So we are the captives. We are his captives now set free. So he's giving us that application of what is old and what is new. And he's saying, he's saying, it's like, take that idea, but then turn it upside down. And what you have is that we are the captives being let out. And instead of receiving gifts from all the others who have been conquered, who recognize his greatness, he's the one distributing gifts too. It's intentional by Paul to draw our attention to the fact that this is how different, right, the conquest of Christ is. We are the captives set free, and we get that because the context of Ephesians up to this point has been how we have been dead in our sins but made alive in Christ. It's about Christ's conquest over sin and death and how he deserves our gifts, but we have nothing to give him. We are destitute. And so by grace, we have been saved. We, we have no works to offer. We have nothing we can boast of. And I think that's Paul's point. His point is simply this. Everything that is given to the church for its good, every good gift, every gifted soul, has been placed there by him through his gospel victory. Because they are redeemed. 
Because he has conquered death and sin for us. Because he has rescued you from your sins. Because of all that he has accomplished, that's why he gives you. Because you have nothing to offer to him. It means that every enablement for service that is uh, available in every part of the body of Christ, it is a testimony of Christ's victory over sin and death. It's a testimony of his capacity to make us useful. It's a testimony of what the gospel does to individuals who stop living for themselves and living for, for others in ways that doesn't make sense to the rest of the world. This isn't I'll give into the team so long as the team wins. This is I give into my family because that's what Christ has gifted me to do. It's a testimony of what those that have been redeemed by the blood of Christ look like. Verses 9 and 10 is a commentary on uh, um, verse 8. Or maybe a commentary on the idea that has been presented from Psalm 68. In verse 9 and 10, if you're looking at the ESV, you notice the parentheses uh, to say that Paul is trying to explicate this a little bit. He says, in saying he ascended, what does it mean? But that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all heavens that he might fill all things. I'll just say two things about this. One, the idea is that Christ is now ascended. And that ascension Right? Deals with his victory over sin, over death. He's not ascended until he's, de- until he's died, right? And has been raised from the dead in victory over sin. It's just the gospel message realized in full victory. He is ascended above all powers, above all heavens, above all things, so he might fill all things. He has that capacity because he has won. That's his ascension. The question is, what is his descension? Because it's a Theologically, and in church history, there have been a couple of different takes on this. One is that when it says that he has, he has descended into the lower regions, there, there is some, some old kind of uh, views on this that have suggested that he has descended into Hades or into hell or to Abraham's bosom. There's a lot of different terms for it. But the idea that when he died on the cross, that for the, the couple of days that he is gone, he has gone into the place of the, the dead souls, and he separates those faithful dead, right? Like Abraham and others, from the other dead, and then he brings them up. Now listen, wonderful and interesting, a little medieval, right? But I don't think well attested in Scripture, I think the plain teaching here is simply that he descended, as the ESV tries to do, into the lower regions, meaning or equal to the earth. The point seems to me that Paul is trying to say that, that he, as the ascended one who has, who, has, who has conquered sin and death for us, who has rescued all of us and has given us gifts, He is reminding us that his victory has been in his ascension. But for him to ascend, he had to become a human, live on this planet, die for our sins, and to be raised so that he might be ascended on high above all the the heavens, and he might be the one who can fill all things. And if you think in those terms, the, the point Paul seems to be making in the context he's trying to build around is the fact that how do you grow the church? Well, you grow it by the gifts that this conquering Savior gives to you. And he's able to do that, and he does that because of the gospel of grace, your salvation and redemption, which he has accomplished in his death, or in his incarnation, he descended, in his death, his resurrection, 
so that all that he gives to us and everything he supplies us with is fully his and because of and out of his victory. See, as a part of the victory of the gospel in, in our life, right, in your life, you are gifted to serve the church to your Savior's glory. That seems to be where Paul is going. That, that gifting is not from you. It's not because of you. It's from him. It's a mixture of all kinds of different things, different flavors, different details. You are unique in the way and the capacity that you can serve him. And we need one another. And all of it, as it functions together in the body of Christ, is to bring glory to a Savior who has overcome sin and death on our behalf. So we might grow in love and in loving service and in caring for one another in the body of Christ. You are gifted to exalt Jesus Christ, our Savior, in the corporate body, his body, right, which is called the church. And you think about how that fits into the context. I mean, you're talking about Jews and Gentile enemies that now become siblings, right? All of them individually and uniquely gifted so that they might bear a testimony of what Christ has done for them. And in the using of those gifts, it unites them in interdependence and love one to another. All right. Well, secondly, all right, when we look at verses 11 through 13, we are gifted to build up the body. Verse 11 says this, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and the shepherds and teachers, right? Now, I want want to capture something so that we understand this. He is talking about the blessing of the ministers of the word. And I say it that way because of two things. One, apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers, while while they can be offices in the church, I think this emphasis is on the fact that these are the gift. These individuals are gifted in such a way that would help establish the church. Why do I say that? Because that's literally the opening verb, right? And he gave apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. You get it? It's not just talking about apostles as officers, right? He gave the office of prophets. He gave the office of evangelists, right? He gave the title of shepherd. His whole point is he gave such individuals and he's gifted them in such a way for the sake of the church. He has just said it is meant to be for the sake of the church. And so he, he, he highlights these particular, right, gifts to the church. And as he does, all of these gifts have one singular thing in common. Because if you're wondering, why does he mention these gifts? And he doesn't mention like, I don't know, gift of administration or helps. Why does he mention the gift of mercy? Or the, are they, because his emphasis is on what builds up the body. And particularly, apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. These all have a ministry of the proclamation of God's word. Apostles, right? Their main function was to, to establish the church In the beginning of the church age, they're God's messengers who speak on God's behalf and open up new territories by the gospel preaching and by all kinds of wondrous things as they represent Christ into the world. The apostles, right, um, that age is past and we don't have apostles today, right? After the first century, there were no more apostles. 
It means sent ones, but these individuals were foundational for the church. Prophet, the second term, were individuals that spoke on behalf of God. Their purpose was to speak revelation to the church. If you don't have the scriptures, it's very helpful that God gives them a direct revelation. And it's through the apostles and the prophets that God writes the scriptures. And as a result of that, once the canon of the scripture is established, the need for apostolic ministry a prophetic ministry that fades. If the apostles go forward and proclaim the word of God and establish churches where there are none, the prophets arise and build up those churches by bringing the revelation of God's word. They have faded from church history uh, upon the establishment of the sending church and the canon of scripture. Then there are evangelists. That would be like, you know, I guess modern missionaries. Again, not necessarily emphasizing an office, like you have to have evangelists as officers in the church. In fact, the the New Testament gives us only two officers, right? Elders and deacons. Evangelists are individuals that are gifted, particularly to, to share the gospel. And what a shame because that term evangelist has taken such a negative kind of connotation because of tele-evangelist, right? And the concept has been diminished. But think, think well of people like Billy Graham, who just proclaimed the scriptures, itinerant, like apostles and prophets often were, right? Itinerant, traveling, sharing the gospel. I like how R. Kent Hughes, he calls them the obstetricians of the church because they are gifted to help bring in new births, right? Obstetricians. If you didn't know what that means, it's the baby doctors, right? They're the ones that deliver the babies, right? Um, so apostles, prophets, evangelists, ministries, mostly itinerant, but a proclamation of the truth of God, right? A ministry of the word. And then you have pastors and teachers or shepherds and teachers in our ESV. Our ESV translates the word that your other English translations would have as pastor, right? As shepherd. And understandably so. They mean really essentially the same thing. In fact, shepherd, pastor, Elders, overseers all refer to the same office when it's referring to an office. And, and, and at IBC, we have staff, staff pastors and we have lay elders, but you could similarly call them staff elders and lay pastors, right? Because it's all the same concept. We might be used to using some in a certain vernacular, right? Um, over others, but the point being that pastor teachers, right, and these are, I think they are intended to be one. And the reason why is because in the entire list, the definite article appears before each of these gifts, right? The apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and then a singular definite article, the, right, pastor and teacher. And so probably, probably, it's a hendeodice, which just means that these two concepts describe two aspects of the same thing. I mean, listen, I'm not going to go to the grave for that, right? I'm not going to put our reputation on the line for that because there's a possibility it means two different things, that there are pastors and there are teachers. But the point is not so much the office, but the gifting. This is what Christ has given to us. This is what the conqueror has provided for the church for the building up of the body of Christ, Right? So if evangelists are obstetricians, they bring in the babies. Pastors, teachers are the pediatricians. They're the ones that raise these babies, make sure that they're nourished right so that they become full-grown adults, right? That seems to be the point here. 
And, and, and as we emphasize the gifting to the church of the blessing of the ministers of the word, yes, we don't have apostles anymore, right? But we have their inspired writings. We don't have prophets anymore, but again, we have inspired, canonized scripture. We do have evangelists who take this scripture and this gospel message to the ends of their world, right? Missionaries. But in the church, the ministry of the word predominantly flows out of your elders, your pastors, your shepherds. That's a gifting to the church. And it is, it is a focal point, right? The ministry of the word for the growth of the church. Colossians 3.16, I think Frank even mentioned it in his prayer, I believe. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God, the Father, through him. The ministry of the word is central to the vitality and the growth of the body of Christ. Listen. The teaching of scripture, in whatever form, might be one of the most uninteresting things you have to do on a given Sunday. And I'm okay with that. Like, if you tell me, man, you you are boring and I sometimes fall asleep, I'm like, not that offended, right? Because I'm like, okay, that's too bad. I I don't think that's healthy for you, but I get it. Maybe I'm not that exciting and that's fine, right? I'm I'm cool with that because that doesn't really offend me. I still have to do what I do and I do it for the sake, right, of making sure that we are learning and growing in the knowledge of God's word. If you are not learning and growing in the knowledge of God's word, you have very little to offer the body of Christ. And you might say, well, but I kind of feel like my ministry is like hospitality, fellowship, connecting with people. Fantastic. But how do you know if you've gone past the limit of what you should do? How do you know if what you do is not helpful or is helpful? Do you not know because of what the scriptures say? See, without a healthy diet of learning and growing and taking in the ministry of the word, your capacity to fulfill and execute your gifts unto Christ's glory diminishes. Is it not interesting to you that as soon as Paul says grace was given to each one according to the measure of Christ's gift, the first thing he says, these gifts are given to you because Christ conquered sin and death for you. You are part of his church body. And the next thing he says is some of the human embodiments of his gifting to you are the ministers of the word. Not because the ministers are so valuable, but because the ministry of the word is. Christian, if you are not growing in your understanding, in the depth, in the reasoning, the thoughtfulness, the wonder of God revealed in his scriptures, then you're not growing as a Christian and you have so little to offer the rest of the body of Christ. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly and then you'll be teaching, admonishing one another in wisdom. You'll be singing songs. Isn't that interesting? Why is singing songs next to the word of Christ dwelling? Because we want to sing songs that exalt Christ. Right? Did I ever tell you guys a story when, when Kathy and I first got married a few years ago? It was, it was a long time ago. But it was the first time Kathy and I ever went to Hawaii. And we thought, hey, it's a Sunday. We should visit a church. And I just looked. I didn't know better. I don't know if there was even an internet. There wasn't Google when we got married, right? So I think I looked up like in, I don't know, Yellow Page or something. I don't know how we looked it up. But we just found the church that was really close. So we go and visit. And it was a liberal church. 
And by liberal, like you guys know, I don't use that term and slap it on good Christians that just lean left of us. That's fine. They lean left of us. That's what I'll say. Right. But I mean that I'm wondering if there's even a really gospel message there. And so it's just interesting. Everybody was cool. But we closed the service by singing a hymn to Hawaii, the island. I'm not kidding. I don't remember the lyrics. I just remember just being shocked that the lyrics had something like, and we thank you, you know, Hawaii, right? And, and, and I'm just like, who's Hawaii? Like, what is happening, right? And then in, during the message, which is kind of a sharing by this, this kind pastor, I'm sure he's a, he's a decent individual, right? But he shares in the message. And then he says, let me share a song with you. A song, that's what triggered this memory, right? And then the song goes like this. He goes, when you're down and lonely and you need, see, all the, all the, right, all the older than 50, 45 people know that's a James Ingram song. And as far as I know, James Ingram don't write Christian songs, right? And then so he sings it, and I'm thinking, oh, yeah, this is familiar. It's kind of a cool song and stuff. And I start thinking, wait a minute, this is familiar in a different context. And I, this is not a Christian song, Right? We don't just sing songs because they make us feel good. They could make us, they should make us feel good. I'm not, I'm not encouraging the singing of songs that, that don't make us feel good. Man, I hate this song, but it speaks truth. Let's sing this, right? I am saying that even in the songs that move us emotionally, thoughtfully, etc., they must be, be here with the word of Christ dwelling in us richly. It is the ministry of the word that is the focal point of Christ's gifting to us. And that's why he begins with the blessing of ministers of the word. Verse 12. I'm going way too slow for this. Let's move. The equipping of the saints for ministry. Verse 12 says, To equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. And listen, this is a watershed verse in terms of how the church is constructed, all right? The church is not a triangle or pyramid, if you need it to be 3D, all right? The church is not a pyramid where the senior pastor is on top. I wish it was, you know? I'll be honest with you. That just like, okay, you, you fire, you fire, you get out, you get out, right? Oh, you, you come in, right? Um, it's not. It, the church is not this triangle where I, I think, you know, um, where power resi- you know, resides at the top, like some little pope, right, over all the laity. It, it is more like the leaders, the ministers of the word, equipping the rest of the congregation for the work of the ministry. Hebrews 13 has a very very sober reminder that, you know, that if you're a teacher of the word, you are accountable for the souls that is entrusted to your care. That's a true statement. But on the other side of that, you realize is this statement, that the, that the, that the elders, their ministry of the word to you is for the sake of equipping you for the work of the ministry. So if we ask ourselves, what is it? If I ask myself, Lord, at the end of the age when I appear before you, what is it that I'm held accountable for? Yes, I'm held accountable for my people, for God's congregation that I was supposed to shepherd and care for. That's true. But to say that, that I'm the only one accountable for their good and their growth is absolutely false. My ministry of the word to you is so that you might grow in the knowledge of the things of the Lord so that you could fulfill the work of the ministry and build up 
the body of Christ. See how, how interesting that is? That you are to equip, we are to equip saints for ministry. The goal of Christian leadership is to train every Christian in the congregation for the work of the gospel and for one anothering. Leaders are gifted in their task of explaining the scriptures and helping you apply them, right? So that not a few people do all the work, but so that all the people are trained to do this work together, to do your part, to do what you can, to grow in the areas that you want to grow in so that you can be better equipped to minister to your brothers and sisters in Christ, right? It's for the work of the service. In our English, it doesn't capture it well, but there's three phrases here. One, to equip the saints, right? That's the ministry of the word, to equip the saints. Secondly, it's for the work of service. To equip the saints for the work of service. It is so that each one is involved actively. Each one applying their own unique abilities and even overcoming their inabilities. One pastor is telling this story, right, of how uh, this one season he has a daughter um, playing the lead in a school play. And then he has a son who has um, a different play, um, and he only has four lines. So here's a daughter playing the lead, and she did fantastically, apparently, right? She did super well. She was dramatic. She did the, oh, you know, like she did. She played it so well, got a standing ovation at the end of the thing. And these parents, this pastor and his wife, were so glad, right? And then he went to see the son's play a few weeks later, and he just had four lines that he had to work so diligently to memorize. And he's so nervous about it, right? But he got those lines out. He said his lines. He did it well. Nobody applauded or went crazy or anything. It all went. But in their hearts, they said they were just ecstatic. Because it's not about how gifted you are in terms of what people see. It's about the uniqueness of each one of us and how we are gifted for the work of service. It's what we accomplish for the things of the Lord that maybe only the Lord and a few others might know. And that is the blessing. And if you could buy into that, we become a body of believers that are pouring love and care into one another. This is what it means to equip the saints for the work of service. And here's the third phrase, verses 12 and 13. Oh, I'm sorry, verses 12. All right? For the building up of the body of Christ. For the building up of the body of Christ. There is unity. We strive for the same things. We serve the same God. We're saved by the same gospel. But there's diversity in how we come about that. But the entire point is that we might build up, right? It's a, it's a you know, it's a, a, a construction term that we would build up, put the pieces together so that we might grow up into the things of the Lord. The gifts that God gives us as believers are never for selfish purposes. It is always for the building up of others in the body of Christ. Yeah, don't, don't be that dude. Right, that just kind of like has his one friend, maybe his girlfriend. That's that's all that he does, right? I mean, that's fine, you know. That's she's a girlfriend, you know. She's a wife. That's that's fantastic. But in the body of Christ, your membership here is for the work of service to receive the ministry of the word to grow in your work of service, so that you might build up the corporate body of Christ, right? So the blessing of the ministers of the word for the sake of equipping the saints for ministry, and third, to attain unity unto maturity. Verse 13, 
until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Unity of faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God. In other words, we are one in our faith, in our doctrine. Right? And, and understand this. Again, if it's not a pyramid, if I'm not the person on top, then it's not you are identified and one with my opinions about the church and life. Right? The idea is that we together have come to a unity of the same gospel message, of the same faith, of the same knowledge of him and the son of God and what he has accomplished for us. It's, it's exactly what you feel when you are engaged in the singing of our songs during worship. When we're exalting Christ for his work on the cross and forgiving us of our sins and canceling our debt and calling us to himself, and we sing that next to this brother, next to this sister, we are singing that corporately together because we are unified with the same thoughts and the same knowledge of Christ. And in that moment is the most purest moment of genuine fellowship. Fellowship is not we share a hot dog or a hamburger, right? I mean, you can have fellowship, having hot dogs and hamburgers and watching movies or doing what? Uh, I'm not against that. But the purest form of fellowship is when we are unified in faith and in the depth of our appreciation and knowledge of who the Son of God is. That's when we are at our purest in heart and mind and in unity. And that's to come whether it's your liberties, right, or your legalistic tendencies. When you tear that apart, right, by either judging or by being a nuisance or hurting others, man, you're doing the opposite of that image of what it looks like to be one voice, the same faith, the same knowledge of the same Savior, the Son of God. And we are to build the church unto maturity, unto maturity, right? Until we attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to mature manhood. Manhood's the right translation. You know, there's a couple of different words that scripture uses for man, and then sometimes generally for like, like generally, genderlessly, mankind. Anthropos is the one that you'd be most familiar with. And that could be used for individual men, but is, is often used for mankind as a whole. That's not the term here, curiously enough. It's the term aner, which means man in a, in a masculine, gender-specific way. It's a term that could be, in other contexts, translated husband. So why use aner here? And I think because Paul's not here distinguishing right, genders as much as he is distinguishing childishness and full maturity. He, he is saying, we're not trying to raise little boys. Trying to raise little boys into full-grown men. And that's what the church needs to be. Maturity unto full adulthood. Right? Just as Jews and Gentiles are brought together into one new body to form a new man, that man must mature into the body of Christ. To the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. That's a mouthful. And it just means that, that we are to grow into the majesty that is our Savior. He's the one that has rescued us. He's the one that saved us. And he is the one into which we want to grow in terms of the maturity of the church. We're going too long. Let me, let me end with this illustration, right? Um, th- this idea of growing the body into its head, uh, I don't know why, but it reminds me of all the little babies that run around in our church, right? Because uh, 
I love it. There's a period of time in um, a developing human being's life where, you know, they are, they are early toddlers. And it is the cutest thing. We don't realize it, but their heads are disproportional to their bodies. So, you know, like the really little kids, you know, the ones that could barely walk and stuff. See if they could touch their, their hands over their head. They can't. Their head is too big, right? Their body hasn't grown in, right, proportionally to the size of the big giant head. That's amazing to me and wondrous and really cute and funny. But if I, at this age, I think I'm 53, I believe, right? Am I 53 still? I think I'm 53, right? At 53, if my head were that same disparate, like, like was this big, where I couldn't put my hand over my head? That's disgust. That's weird, right? That's Modoc. Remember Modoc, right? He just got little arms and stuff. That's, that's a weird thing. That's not a helpful thing. That's a bizarre thing. And I think that's kind of the illustration. We are supposed to take children, right? A young group of believers, and we are trying to feed them by the ministry of the word, by the gifts that God, had, Christ has supplied for us, established in his gospel victory over sin and death for us. Then the body of Christ then is to grow. The body is to grow into its head. That's explicitly stated in the third point that we won't get to today, Right? That we are to grow into our head, who is to fulfill, who is to be the fullness of all things. And we are to, to demonstrate not just our satisfaction, but the greatness of our Savior, right? By growing our body into something that is worthy of the manner of the calling of our Savior Jesus Christ. See, this is why he begins here. This is why he begins at the church. Before he gets to things like, you know, um, how you work with your hands and, you know, how, how, you, how you get along as husband and wife and how you treat your children and what your workplace is like. Before all those practical things, it always begins at the first place and it's in the home. And spiritually speaking, the home is not your family unit, right? Spiritually speaking, your home is the church and the members of it. And how we are to grow this church unto full maturity to the glory of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the preaching of the word. We thank you for the ministry of the word. Um, Not necessarily because of the capacities of the ministers, but because of the truthfulness and the value and the wonder of your scriptures. Lord, we recognize your grace to us in giving to us all that we need for life and godliness. And Lord, forgive us that we don't take advantage of these things, Lord unto your glory, unto your purposes, unto using our giftedness for the building up of your body so that your body might fill out and mature and might match the glory of our Savior and head, Jesus Christ. We pray that you would establish this church to honor you. Lord, give us conviction to serve one another to your glory to the best that we can according to your gifts. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.